Pastor Xavier Reese with an illustration of this simple truth of 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. What are you trusting in for your life? Bank account? Job? Let's take something more tenuous. How about your health? Listen, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Whether it's a high-tech automatic firearm, all the way up to a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, there's a lot riding on a military's trust in their armaments. But Pastor Xavier explains in the conclusion of a Simple Truth study titled The Fearful Judgment of Israel, God's purposes aren't altered no matter what wartime strategy man has his faith in. Let's listen in now to this message of Jeremiah for the people of Judah in God's oracle against Egypt. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 1 through 12, and the message is entitled, The Fearful Judgment of Egypt. The setting for judgment of Egypt is found in verse 1 and 2. Notice first in verse 1. The identity of judgment against Egypt is given, and the oracle is a divine oracle. Its origin is from God. Once again, we hear here the words of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet, a constant repetition, that it's God who is directing, declaring, and revealing. The name ascribed for judgment, you can't miss it. It's against the nation of Egypt in verse 2. The setting is in prose, while the oracle itself is in poetry from verse 3. To verse 12, the judgment is against the army of Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh Necho II, who was king of Egypt in 609 to 594 BC. It's very specific. The identity of the place and the prevailer of the judgment of Egypt is given also. The particular location of the judgment would take place at the river Euphrates in Carchemish. The prevailing victor, notice, is identified as Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He's God's instrument. God used who he wills as the instrument for judgment. He used Noah to judge the whole world in Genesis 6-8. He used Assyria to judge Israel, as we know already from Isaiah, the rod of his anger, Isaiah 10-5. He used Babylon now to judge Judah here, calling Nebuchadnezzar his servant in verse 10 of chapter 43 of Jeremiah. God's in control. The setting for the judgment of Egypt was under God's control. Notice, secondly, we have in the second movement the preparation for the judgment of Egypt in verse 3 to 6. Notice in verse 3 and 4, the eve of the battle is declared. I want you to see this battlefield. Listen well. The command is in preparation to attack. Verse 3. The command is given to the infantrymen to order the buckler and the shield. Two kinds of shields are described here. The first is the smaller, the buckler. And the second, the full body armor. The adrenaline is running high. They're seeing the enemy afar. They're to draw near to battle, verse 3 says. 
this was not another training exercise, but the reality of life and death. It's here. The men are called into their positions in verse 4. They are to posture themselves for battle in a very picturesque scenario. Listen. The cavalry is to harness their horses and the horsemen are to mount up. They were to stand forward with their helmets, polish their spears and put on their metal armor to protect them from the mortal blows. The poetical sarcasm cannot be missed by the polishing of their spears rather than sharpening of them. What soldier is going to be interested in having a shiny weapon that would give him away rather than a sharp one who would strike the enemy? There's sarcasm here on the part of God. Those trusting in their own ability, their own power, their armament. Notice secondly, when you get to verse 5 and 6, the defeat of Egypt is described. They're described as dismayed, meaning full of terror and shattered. The personal eyewitness is evident by the personal prom, why have I seen? They responded by turning back. No one knows how they will react in war until they are there. The cool, calm intellectual assessment and theory is shattered by the frantic confusion and terror. Their mighty ones are beaten down and speedily fled in haste, not even looking back. Even those who are considered the best are doing this. It's a horrible sight. The reason was that fear was all around, verse 5 says. The reality of death struck them like never before. They thought of perhaps never seeing their family again, their loved ones, their wives, their children. Everything just flooded into them. Again, the one witnessing the battle is the one commanding it and revealing the future events of it. Who is it? Yahweh. It is God. Verse 5, at the end, very clear. Some declare that this was written after the battle instead of before it took place. But the prophecy was for the purpose of revealing to Jehoiakim the futility of trusting in the arm of flesh Egypt instead of trusting God. This is beforehand. God giving Jehoiakim another chance. Which he did not take, by the way. Notice in verse 6, their inability to escape is declared. It's a horrible sight. The command to not let any swift or mighty to escape is given by Yahweh. He's a commander. The swift were the light-footed. Those who were able to run fast. The mighty were the strong who would stand and fight. They're both being dismayed. They will stumble and fall, implying their death. And they would go towards the north and fall by the river Euphrates. Warfare. Horrible. Pretty heavy. Job said in Job 12, 23, He makes nations great. He destroys them. He enlarges nations. And He guides them. The preparations for the judgment of Egypt was after God's command. Notice the third movement. Verse 7 through 12. The futile defense against the judgment of Egypt. 
First in verse 7 and part of 8. The massive Egyptian army is described. Notice well. God mockingly snubs at the great power of the Egyptian army that is like the flooding Nile by its tributaries. Here you have some more poetry. Though impressive to man, Yahweh was not moved. As the tributaries flooded into the Nile and its banks of the Niles swelled, it also would subside after losing its power. The question by God is in a form of sarcasm, implying that their defense is hopeless against God. Even though their armies are swelling by us, we're going to see these mercenaries. They don't impress God. He says, who is this coming up like a flood? Whose waters move like the rivers? In other words, what are you doing? You remember when Goliath saw David coming out to him? He said, what am I, a dog that you sent out a kid to fight me? Overconfident. Men's impressed by men. But God isn't impressed by all of men. Notice secondly, the end of verse 8. The overconfident words of the Egyptians are declared. Pharaoh is believed to be the one being quoted as the warrior here. Who is a type of Satan, by the way, in scripture. Reminding us of the I wills of Satan against God in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. I will, I will exalt myself. God says, you'll be brought down to hell. Satan is the one who weakens and deceives the nations of the world, Isaiah 14, 12 says. He's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Pharaoh first notice declares his ongoing empire to extend his control on the earth. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. Only God holds control of the earth. It belongs to him. Only God can give power to kings and leaders on the earth. Pharaoh then declares his sovereignty over life and death, thinking he's God. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. God alone is the judge of man. God alone has compassion on them. Man doesn't have compassion on man. Notice thirdly in verse 9 and 10, the invitation by Yahweh is pronounced. Yahweh knowing in verse 9 their destruction invites them to come by way of satire. He gives a command. Listen to him. He says, come up, O horses, enrage, O chariots. In other words, you don't stand a chance. Horses and chariots were an awesome weapon for that day. When people saw them, they were gripped with fear. But not God. Egypt was known for its horses, as you know. Its chariots. In fact, Solomon had gone into a little import business of horses and chariot enterprise in 1 Kings 10, 28 and 29, which he was not supposed to. Notice he says in verse 9, And let the mighty men come forth, the Egyptians and the Libyans who handle the shield, and the Lydians who handle the bend, the bow. These were mercenaries who had sold their services to Egypt. Later on in verse 16, they would cry out to go back to their lands in the midst of the battle as fear gripped them. Like the tributaries that fluttered into the Nile and swelled the Nile to overflow its banks, so all these mercenaries were like tributaries causing the Egyptian army to be so huge and impressive, yet God would deflate it. It would be nothing. You can't fight against God and win. Oh, you can fight, <laughs> but you're not going to win. Now notice in verse 10, the reason is given for the command by Yahweh. For this is the day of the Lord, God of hosts. This is an appointed day by Him. Don't miss that. 
The word God is the Adonai and Lord is Yahweh. The master and covenant God is the enemy of the Egyptians and the one who is going to destroy them. He is the one who writes history beforehand. That's why it's best to have it hyphenated. His story. He was bringing about the time of the Gentiles, as we've already mentioned, which he would reveal to Nebuchadnezzar in the second year, the following year in Daniel 2. Notice the event is presented by Yahweh as vengeance, listen, by the sword as well as a sacrifice. Kind of a weird mix of metaphors here, isn't it? The sword and a sacrifice. The just vindication and judgment would appease his wrath. The sword shall devour. It shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. The offering would appease his wrath. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. So here he's vindicating himself. It's not just anger out of control. It's just judgment. And it's a sacrifice. That which vindicates God's holiness. His righteousness. His warnings. His allotted time to repent. Which has been shunned. Notice fourthly in verse 11 through 12. The inevitable doom of the Egyptians is proclaimed. Once again, Yahweh taunts the Egyptian army to relieve her mortal wound that cannot be cured. Go up to Gilgal and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines. You shall not be cured. You say, boy, that's, that's all. How could God do that to me? No, it isn't. He's holy. When you're given time, opportunity over and over again and judgment comes, everything that God does is absolutely just and deserved, by the way. As a virgin, Egypt had been protected by her geographical location and now she would come to a ruin as she has overextended herself up north. Gilgal was known for its medicinal balm and also in sarcasm, the Egyptians did not have control of the region, so they couldn't go there anymore. So the taunt is both in the medicine as well as the location to seek it. You remember Jeremiah may mention of Gilgal? Jeremiah 8.22? Listen. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? The entire section is filled with irony by the commands to go up as well as their false confidence, for they do not stand a chance. He finishes off in verse 12 with the prophetic revelation of Yahweh that would become, listen, history. The news would be heard by all the nations about the Egyptian shameful defeat. They would be witnessed in their horror an agony that will fill the land. The mighty man would panic and stumble over the other to their death. The oracle is written as it already happened. The prophetic perfect, which is no problem for God. It's as good as happened. You remember Herod one day, he sat arrayed in royal apparel... And he sat on his throne and gave an oration to the people. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. 
Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died, Acts 12, 21-23 says. How individual men think that they have all the power. How individual nations believe that they rule the world. Totally ignoring that it's God. When God returns to the earth in Psalm 2, He will laugh at those in the battle of Armageddon. He will have them in derision. Listen to Psalm 1, because Psalm 1 is a preview of the battle of Armageddon. Listen. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So they're there to stop God from setting up the kingdom. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits on the heavens shall laugh, meaning God, the Lord coming back. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The context is the return of Christ. It's the second coming. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Here's the warning. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. The pagan practice of kissing idols. Remember, you Catholics? And I? You kiss your little idol. He says, you want to kiss somebody, plant one on my son. It's a evidence of your devotion to him. Don't worship idols. Don't worship other gods. Don't trust the arm of flesh. You trust him. And you perish in my way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Psalm 2 stands as a warning and has for thousands of years against every nation, against every leader, against every individual to repent and turn and be one with God by kissing the Son, lest he return and his wrath fall upon them. Nations are overconfident in their military might and they blaspheme God. Challenging him. But God will not disappoint them, even as he didn't disappoint the Assyrians. As you know, Rabshakeh, the commander of the armies, said some nasty words to the men on the wall. And then they sent a letter to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah went in to God and prayed to him in Second Kings nineteen seventeen and 18. He said this, Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. You know what happened. God sent one angel out at night, and he slew 250,000 front Line Assyrian troops. The day of judgment for a nation is inescapable when God has pronounced their day. This was the day of the Egyptians. By the way, Egypt has never risen ever, like God said. There's some promises in the end days for them, but 
It's never been a world power. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. What are you trusting in for your life? Your bank account? Job? Let's take something more tenuous. How about your health? Egypt represents the world in Scripture, as you know, the arm of flesh. That which replaces and rejects God. The word Egypt appears 541 times in the Old Testament. The command constantly was not to return to Egypt, but many of the people's hearts were still in Egypt. And they're always murmuring, complaining, looking back. The melons, the leeks, all oh, those garlics. Hmm. They forgot the whip. Jude tells us, but I want you to remind you, though you once knew it, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Jude, verse 5. It's only one chapter in Jude. In fact, King Solomon is said to have loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh's women of Moab. Ammonite, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nation of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, it says. And he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart, for it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart from after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Second Kings 10, 1 through 6. God says, don't go back to Egypt. Don't be messing with Egypt. Don't go there. Now you know that all of these things happen as examples and are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come that we might learn through them. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and Romans 15 tells us. So these are not just mere stories. They're, they're flashing warnings that we learn. The believer has come out of the world and though he or she lives in the world, they're not of the world. Listen to the authors of Hebrew. By faith, Moses, when he became an a of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seen him who is invisible. Hebrews eleven twenty four. Do you see he who is invisible? That's what's going to hold you. Your love for Him. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. 1 John 5, 4. Why? Listen. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. The fearful judgment of Egypt. The futile defense against the judgment of Egypt was prophesied. Mm, inescapable. What an incredible oracle or prophecy of judgment against Egypt unfolded in this threefold movement. The setting for the judgment of Egypt was under God's control. Understand that clearly. The preparation for the judgment of Egypt was after God's command. He gives the orders. The futile defense against the judgment of Egypt was prophesied. Nothing can be done about it. Man, may we pay heed. May our nation pay heed.
Pastor Xavier Reese, breaking down the oracle against Egypt of Jeremiah chapter 46 into three applicable simple truths for our nation today. And just before we close, I'd like to mention that copies of today's Simple Truth study titled The Fearful Judgment of Israel are available on CD for only $4. By the way, we'll be including everything Pastor Xavier shared with us the last time we were together as well. Once again, the title to ask for is simply The Fearful Judgment of Israel, or just mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then be back for more Simple Truths right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com